I want to invite our children to Children's Church. They're uh, looking at Joseph, if I understand that correctly, which is kind of timely because we're looking at Joseph. So as they go, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, it's so true. You are our inheritance. Lord, you are the one that's promised to us that we get to be with you forever. What a glorious thing to sing. What a glorious truth to have to announce on a Sunday morning. And Lord, I pray that that glorious truth would sink into our hearts and that we would embrace that. Um, Lord, help us to, to worship properly, we pray. And Father, I pray for uh, Revive AV and uh, for Pastor Jeff as they're meeting this morning. I pray for Jeff's health. He's been sick lately, and I pray that you've restored him to, to full health and um, be with him as he's preaching your word this morning. May he present to Revive AV the truth of Jesus Christ in fullness. And Lord, we pray that you would put a blessing on Revive's um, upcoming mission trip to the Middle East. Lord, would you go with them, make them successful as they're reaching out to uh, people who have had very little contact with the gospel. Uh, give them safety in their journey and uh, safety while they're there and uh, bring them back safely. But Lord, most importantly, we pray that the gospel would be um, what we know it to be, which is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. And so, Lord, would you grant many to believe at the preaching of your word. Uh, Father, again, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us now as we look into your word. Help us to see and to understand and to delight in, in, in the things that you call us to delight in. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, I said that um, we were kind of at the pinnacle of Joseph's story, his revealing to his brothers and his inviting his family to come down. And um, where we're going now is we're kind of the wrapping up of the story. The fancy term for that is a denouement. Uh, the, the part after the climax of the story where you kind of wrap everything up. And it's wrapping up Joseph's story, but it's also wrapping up the book of Genesis. It's wrapping up what Moses is doing here. So there's many things that kind of begin to flow together as we come into this home stretch of Genesis where Moses is getting to his point that he's been trying to teach Israel all along. And so we're going we're gonna to hear some of that this morning. We'll get a pretty clear picture of, of some of what he's doing in drawing that together. And one of the most important themes in the book of Genesis is the theme of a covenant. Uh, God had created a covenant with Adam. He created a covenant with Noah. He created a covenant with Abraham. And then he successfully transmitted that covenant from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And that's, that's what we get to see a picture of this morning. That's the clear image. So just as a refresher, what's a covenant? Um, I looked on Wikipedia. Actually, I looked in a couple of different legal dictionaries, and Wikipedia had the best summary of it. Uh, don't always trust everything you read in Wikipedia. <laughs> but this one was pretty good. It says, a covenant, in its most general sense and historic sense, is a solemn promise to engage in or refrain from a specific, specified action. So a, a, a covenant is a solemn promise to engage in or refrain from some specific action. Under historic English common law, a covenant was distinguished from an ordinary contract by the presence of a seal. Because the presence of the seal indicated an unusual solemnity in the promises made in a covenant. So that's the, the legal definition of this covenant. It's, it's like a contract, but it's like one step above because they put a seal on it. 
That, that's how they describe it as a legal term. Well, in theological terms, it's a little different. It, it's shaded a little differently. One uh, definition that I read and people pointed to and said this is the best definition is one by a man named O. Palmer Robertson in his book, The Christ of the Covenants. And he defined a covenant, God, a covenant that God makes. He said it was a, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And um, I think that's not bad, but I don't think it's really getting at the heart of what the covenant is when we talk about God's covenant, because the bond in blood doesn't work with every covenant God made. There was no blood in the Davidic covenant. God just showed up and said, David, this is what's going to happen. And David later says, this is the covenant God made with me. So the, the blood, bond and blood kind of idea works for most of them, but not all of them. So I'm reaching to try to incorporate all of the covenants. So at its heart, at the center of what a covenant is, is it's a promise. That's what a covenant is. It's, it's, it's somebody that makes a promise and says, I will bind myself to this because of your promise. And in some covenants, there's a lot of uncertainty in it. And in some covenants, it trusts and there's faith in it. So when Bill and John and Ann talk about covenant, it's just faith. How are they covenant keepers? Well, they just keep their faith in it. It seems one of the values of covenant is it's a bond. And that's what Paul gets at in the Gospel of John, where he says, when you get married, you're married for life. But once one partner dies, the whole partner has to go. But the covenant is not broken. And that's the point, the idea of the covenant. But consider for a moment the fact that God has a covenant. God is a God who has never ceased to live. His covenants are forever. Because folks, even if we die, he keeps his covenants he is the covenant keeper. And then the other thing is, when Chris says he makes a covenant, um, does God need to swear to us that there's a day that he will break that covenant? I, I don't think, because I remember when I was in seminary, I was studying really hard, and Julie and I shared a room, and I said, Harper, let's go to the park. I said, Harper, I don't know this. I said, hey, as soon as I'm done with this book of, and as soon as I open the book of Genesis, I'm going to and the reason she said that was because there have been many times where I promised her there was a day that God said what they would, and I just got caught up in something else. So when she said, you promised, what she's saying is she's looking at me and she's saying, Harper, I know you made a covenant. And, and you have said you would do things and you didn't. So I want you bound to your promise over here. And how you look at it is how you live it. And I said, I'm not going to break my promise. Now I'm not going to break it. And I never did. And the excuse she had thereafter, I don't know what the reason was. But the promise is, is that he makes it. And when you consider God's promises, has God ever failed to keep his covenant? He's never. When he said, let there be, was there ever a chance that it wouldn't be? His word will not stand. So why does God make covenants? To, to bind himself. God makes covenants with us to assure us because our faith in him is sometimes we doubt. And the other part of the reason that that is true, at least if we consider it as well, is we're chronological, we're stuck in time, and, and if it doesn't happen for a reason that we got in mind, our little brain wants to forget it, or our little heart begins to doubt it, because it didn't happen for a reason that we had in mind. But God's covenant is different. His covenant's expressed through us by Christ. And when he says, I promise, he has been promised because we're not that he's never forgiven. So that's the, the setting that this thing deals in, and this idea that I want to advance in the context. And what we're going to see this morning is, is 
so the word covenant is not in this chapter, but it's all over. So let's take a look. So the first part is Israel takes a journey and a few of them are sent out. So in the center of the confusion, it's in the promised land. And remember last week, Joseph was sent with some wagons from Pharaoh. Pharaoh sent 70 wagons and went with him. sends them to go with him for the, the family that are there. It will be hard for them to trade with the wife of the family prince. It will be really hard for Jacob to get back over to being so wealthy. But Pharaoh sends these wagons out, and they put the family out there, and the, the Ephraimites obviously don't get along with them because they're poor Israelites. But they get to Beersheba. Now, Beersheba was at the southern tip of the promised land. This was about as far south as we know that Jacob ever says, go south and look at Beersheba. Then there's a whole bunch of desert, and then you get to Canaan. So he gets to the end of the promised land, but the part of what is coming up are his stops. And what happens is he stops and offers sacrifice to the God of his father, Isaac. He gets to this place and offers sacrifice. He's doing this. It, it, it has a sense of covenant transmission. It really sounds like Genesis 26, it says, From there he, that's Isaac, went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Fear not, for I'm with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring. And on your servant Abraham's seed, I'll pour my spirit on your seed. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac was born. This is another reference to Isaac Beersheba. So Isaac gets here, and he has a, almost exactly the same kind of experience that Jacob had. He gets to Beersheba. There's an altar there that his father built, so he offers sacrifice on this altar to God. In the night, both Isaac and Jacob receive a visitation from God. And God tells them both, don't be afraid. To Isaac, he says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. To Jacob, he says, don't be afraid to go into the country. Same, don't be afraid that comes from the Lord God. So what's happening here is we're getting that same covenant promise, but there's this Isaac was, I will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So the covenant I made with your father, Isaac, I'm continuing with you. So don't be afraid. I'm with you just as I was with your father. Now we get that same thing, the same place, probably the same altar. There's sacrifices offered. The nighttime comes and God repeats one more time. To the next generation, don't be afraid, I'm with you. I'm sticking true to my covenant. So do you see what I was saying earlier? Is that God's covenants are timeless. He, he is eternal. So Abraham receives the covenant promise, and he died. And Isaac receives the covenant promise, and he died. And now Jacob receives the covenant promise, and he's heading off to Egypt where he'll die. But God is going to be faithful through all of these time periods. He doesn't lose faithfulness because the person he promised is gone. He continues to transmit it successfully over and over again. So despite all the twists and turns that have been going on in the book of Genesis, what we've seen is God is carefully, methodically carrying forward his purpose from the very beginning. 
He's saying, I promised that I would do this and I will do this. It's, it's from the, the start that he's been working this way. And what he promises to Isaac or Jacob is he promises something that, if you think about it for a second, is impossible. He says, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. I'll go with you. I will bring you back, and Jacob will close your eyes. What he means by Jacob will close your eyes is when you're dead, when you've died, Jacob will close your eyes in death, and Jacob will bury you. So God is going to carry Jacob into Egypt where Joseph is, Joseph is going to close his eyes, and then God said, and I will bring you back. So it's really an impossible promise, isn't it? I mean, it, it can't work, because if he's dead, he's not going to be brought back. But that's the beauty of the thing, is what he's promising is, he's promising not just personally to Jacob. At the beginning of this section, he referred to him as Israel. Right? Moses said, Israel traveled. So what the children of Israel hear 400 years later when Moses wrote this would be, I'm going to bring you back. They're hearing again the covenant promise that they would be coming back to the promised land. That God said, I'm going to go with you into Egypt, Jacob. We will travel together there. I will be with you while you're in Egypt. And at the right time, I will bring you back. And that was extraordinarily important for Israel at that time. They needed to hear this because what, what was their experience in Egypt for as long as they could remember? Slavery, brutal slavery. And they're probably crying out and thinking, why has God abandoned us? Why did he leave us? So this promise to Jacob is, Jacob, I'm going with you. I will be with you in Egypt. In the midst of your struggle, in the midst of all the trouble, in all, in all that trial and all that difficulty, and then at the right time, I'll bring you back. And this, too, is God's covenant promise. This is exactly what he told Abraham in, in, in um, Genesis 15. God tells Abraham, cut up some animals and lay them out. And when you read that, you go, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. What it is, is he's saying, cut these animals, lay them out, and we're going to do a covenant ceremony. Now, what Abraham was probably expecting in that covenant ceremony was, God is the greater, Abraham is the lesser. So typically what would happen in these ceremonies is they cut up the pieces and the lesser would walk through while the, the great Lord would stand and watch. And the idea was, I'm walking through these pieces and if I'm not honored, if I'm not favorable to the covenant, if I don't stick true to the covenant, may what happened to them happen to me. That was the picture. So that's probably what Abraham is expecting. He cuts up the animals, he lays them out, and then God doesn't show up. So he's chasing the birds away. Because the birds of prey are coming in and going, dinner time. And then finally, it's time for God to show up. And what he does is not tell Abraham, now get up and walk through there. He knocks him out. Abraham is sound asleep on the ground. He's exhausted from chasing birds. It's a deep sleep. It's not just a normal, I'm tired. There is something supernatural about this. And God walks through the pieces. In the form of a smoking pot and a, and a torch, he walks through the pieces and he says, this is why the covenant is, is going to be secure is because I have pledged myself to it. So when you're unfaithful, the covenant curses fall on me. That's the promise of the covenant. The next thing that he says, here's, here's the promise he makes to him. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on, Abraham, on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completed. What God just told Abraham is what, what we're seeing happen here. The promise of they're going to go into a land that's not theirs. They will be sojourners for 400 years. They will be afflicted. That's going to happen. But in the right time, I will draw them back. I will bring them back out. And he also, right in the middle of it, do you notice what he tells Abraham personally is going to happen to him? You're going to die. And I'm going to remain faithful to your offspring. So again, this is a, our God, our, our timeless God, transcending these covenant promises and extending them off into the future that, that Abraham couldn't participate in. But God says, even though you die, I've cut a covenant with you. Even though you die, I'm going to remain faithful all the way down. This is how this is going to happen. So he goes into that land, and, and what Jacob is doing is Jacob gets to this promise, the, the edge of the promised land, and he stops. And I think he, he may be nervous because God tells him, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Now, some of the commentators made a big deal out of him being afraid. I think what was actually going on here is, is God is reassuring him, you go ahead and you go into Egypt because don't forget, I'm the God of the universe. And that was what was going on in Genesis chapter 1. Remember that? God created everything. He didn't create just Canaan. He's not the gate of God of Canaan. He created everything, the heavens and the earth. He's God over all of it. So what he's telling Jacob is he says, don't be afraid. Go into the promised land because I'm going to go with you. Is he saying, I'm Lord over all. Look, they're, they're, I'm not just the God in the promised land. I'm with you. I'm going to go with you. I will be with you. I am over even your oppressors. Even as these people enslave you, I'm going to come. And what he tells us in Exodus is I'm going to execute judgment on their gods and on their Pharaoh because what they've done to you. So for 400 years, you'll be there, and then I will bring you back. This is the covenant God pledging himself to go with his people, to stick with his people, and to go with them into that even. Now, that's really important for Israel to know. They had to get that because what's happening to them now is very scary. All I've known is Egypt. All I've known is slavery. And now you're leading me out of what I've known into a place I have no idea what's going on. And you're leading me from slavery into freedom, and I don't know how to handle freedom. Remember, that was the premise I said the book of Genesis was written on, is they need to know who they are and who God is. And so that, that's what's happening here. That's why they needed to hear this. This is why God continues to reiterate it, is they need to hear and believe, I am with you, period, end of discussion. Even when you're in a horrible place, even when things aren't going your way, I am with you. I have covenanted myself to be with you. That's what I've done. What does that do for us? How do we deal with that? Well, did God change? You've heard it. You know, the God of the Old Covenant was all mean and nasty. Yeah, baloney. The same God in the Old Covenant is the same God in the New Covenant. He is the same God who's with us, and so he is doing the same thing to us that he did with them. He has given us covenant promises. He's bound himself to us, and he says, even when, it's, even when things are bad, I'm going with you. And you want proof of that? Matthew 28, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Remember, God's not the God of Canaan. He's the God of the whole universe. Now Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. I'm God over all. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And here's the promise. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God told Jacob, don't be afraid. Go into, the, go into Egypt. I know it's a scary place. Go there. I'm going with you. Jesus tells us the same thing. I'm the God over everything. There's not one part of the earth that I'm not Lord over. All authority has been given to me. Now I want you to go, and I want you to make disciples. And I am with you even until the end of the age. So the promise, the covenant promise, this idea of God's covenant being across time is really crucial, not only for Israel at that time, it's really important for us. Because if we're rooting it on God's promise, his rock-solid promise, if we're rooting our lives on that, if we're rooting everything we have in that deep, rich promise that transcends time, then we have the power to say, I'm not even afraid of death because God's power transcends even death. What's the worst they can do to me? Send me to the arms of my Savior? I trust him. He has bound himself to me. He's promised himself to me. He has said, even if I break the covenant, he's going to be faithful. That's the beauty of this. So when, when Jacob gets to the edge of the promised land and he, he stops, God's assuring him, you go because I'm sending you and I'm not going to forget about you. Now, later in Exodus, when you get into the beginning of Exodus and, and the people are being afflicted, At one point it says, and then God remembered them. Now, is he saying God somehow forgot? Like he went with them and then he got busy doing something else? I find it fascinating that Moses, the same author, uses these two different words. I promise I'll go with you, I'll be with you, and I'll lead you out. And then he remembered them. What what it's saying in in Exodus is God saying, look, I told you exactly how long it was going to be. This is the time, now I'm going to act. But consider them. They've got 400, I think it says 430 years. And I was reading in this other version of the Bible, and it said, to the self-same day. So the day that they went in, 430 years later, they came back out. God was with them that whole time. What he says when he means, what he means when he says, I remembered them, and he heard their groanings, is he said, okay, time is done. This is, this is the point. This is when you return. And do you remember from uh, Genesis 15 what the, the, the time mark was, what the, the indicator was that the time would be fulfilled? The sin of the Amorites had been filled up. So the people in the land, when God had been patient with them for 430 years, actually longer that because how long did Abraham wander there and Isaac and, and Jacob? When their sin had finally reached its full measure, God said, I can't let them go any further. This is the, the maximum amount. Then God says, now I remember my people, let's go. And it's still another 80 years before Joshua and them come in and judge those nations, judge the Amorites for their sinfulness. So this is God working his plan, patiently working, waiting for salvation to draw people to himself and with his people, even in the midst of of difficulty. That's our hope. That's, That's us standing at the edge of the promised land and going, Lord, we need a word. And that's Jesus answering with the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. Go. I'm with you until the end of the age. So this is the timing of God's covenants. It looks to us like he's dragging his feet. Like, where are you right now? America is going down the tubes. We're just, as a nation, sinking into just abysmal debauchery. Where are you? And it can be tempting to, to lose hope. 
But what we have to remember is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his covenant, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. So as we get impatient, as we get edgy about, boy, you need to be doing something, where are you? God's saying, it's okay, I'm going to be faithful to my promise. I told my son Jesus that he would have a multitude that would be his family, and I'm bringing them in. I'm being patient so that many more may come in so that many more may reach repentance. So that's where we're at. We're standing there listening to God's covenant promise. And we're saying, Lord, what do we do next? And he says, don't be afraid to go into all the world because I go with you. So that's that portion. That's that covenant promise. And really, that's the high point of this chapter. <laughs> so we're done. But no, we've got the rest of the chapter we've got to get through. Um, what comes next is this long account um, and Moses' words here are very specific, very precise. He says, then Jacob set out from Beersheba. So once he's gotten God's promise, once he's received the reiteration of the covenant promise, then he sets out. And the sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons, and his daughters and his daughter, son's daughters with him, all his offspring he brought into Egypt. He's like, gee, Moses, did you make the point? He belabors that, doesn't he? He, he, he almost starts counting silverware in this. He brought everything. What he's making the point is, did Jacob go in half-hearted? Jacob threw it all in. Everything he has comes with him. Everything he owned, everything he gained in Canaan, is on the cart and heading towards um, Egypt. So when God says, don't be afraid, you come, what Moses is making sure Israelites hear and we hear is he went, all of it. He didn't leave one scrap behind. There was nothing left in the promised land. He took it all. That's the beauty of this. This is, a, this is the man who goes. This is Jacob, the, the swindler. The, the wheeler dealer, remember when he came back from Haran into the promised land? He separated out everything he had and sent it in waves trying to butter up his brother Esau. None of that here. He doesn't send anything in waves trying to butter up uh, Pharaoh. In this case, he just says, let's go. He's got God's promise. He has trusted him. We're going to see more of, of Jacob and his mature faith at this point, but that is, I think, a huge tell that this man has gotten it together. He has heard and he's trusted his God. What comes next is, and, and I had Steve skip the reading just because it's a long list of names. Most of these names you'll never hear again, or at least some of them. So that brings up the question, um, when I'm doing my, my through the Bible reading and I get to the book of, say, Numbers, what am I supposed to do? Do I stop and ponder each name and find rich, deep theological meaning in, in each name? Um, again, some of them you'll never hear again. I, I don't think that's how God meant it to be, that each individual name is, is this rich, tremendous thing. Sometimes what's best to do is take a step back. Read the genealogy. God inspired each individual word, every letter that's in it. Read it, but then step back and look at the bigger picture. 
And so that's what I want to do with this section is um, Moses puts it together in a really kind of cool way. He groups it in a way you wouldn't anticipate. He groups it based on Jacob's wives. So the first group that we hear about are Leah's children. Then the second group is Zilpah, the maid of Leah, and then Rachel's children, and then Bilhah, the maid of Rachel. That's how he clumps them together is, is who the mother was, not in necessarily birth order, which you'd kind of expect. And so as you kind of browse over this and just kind of um, head through here and, and see what's going on, um, there are a couple of things that, that jump out. In Leah's children, first of all, um, we get to uh, Simeon. And Simeon, the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, um, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. Didn't we have a problem with that, with Judah? Making friends with folks outside the covenant family and, and taking women or taking uh, women for his children? Oh, yeah. Well, now we hear Simeon's done the same thing. He's taken a, a Canaanite wife. And then the sons of Levi and the sons of Judah, Ur er, er, and Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. Parentheses. But Ur er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Why did they die in the land of Canaan? Do you remember? Because they were wicked. Er, God killed Ur er because he was wicked. And then Onan takes Ur's er wife and while he goes into her, he doesn't fulfill his covenant promise to impregnate her and get her to have a child. And so God kills him because he's wicked. So those guys come up. And, and again, we get this kind of twinge. For some reason, it seems like Israel's the only nation that does this. In their sacred writings, they include all the bad people. You know, they don't whitewash it and just include the good folks. They throw all the nasty stuff up here, too. So then the rest goes on, and it mentions at the very end, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padanuram, together with his daughter Dinah. Oh, yeah. Remember Dinah? It's been a while. Dinah went to Shechem and was hanging out with some of the ladies of the city, and Shechem, the king's son, took a shine to her and took advantage of her. And so what happened then was Dinah's brothers went in and slaughtered everybody in Shechem. It was not a high point in Israel's history. Dinah gets called out again here. She gets named again here. And we're going, oh, yeah, Dinah. Poor Dinah. But, man, Levi, what were you doing? That, that's another low point in history. Okay, so the next section is Zilpah's children. And that's pretty straightforward, just a list of Zilpah's children. Um, one of the things I forgot to mention with Leah is it ends with his sons and daughters numbered 33. Okay, so he's counted all the children of Leah, total of 33. Then Zilpah, and he ends, um, uh, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah as his, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So he's doing head counts. And then the next one is Rachel. And Rachel, we know, has two children, but it mentions uh, Joseph is in the land of Egypt, and we're born to him Manasseh and Ephraim, who Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. Oh, yeah. So we've got Canaanite children, and now we've got Egyptian children in the, the Holy Family. Um, that's not necessarily bad, but it does remind us of all of Joseph's story, because that was when he was brought out of prison and Pharaoh favored him. Um, and then it says, 
born to him were 14 because Benjamin had kids too. So there's 14. And then Bilhah, pretty straightforward, seven were born to her. And then at the end, he gives us the totals. So verse 26, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born in Egypt were two. All the persons of the household of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now at the beginning of this, he said, um, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. And then he includes a bunch of people that didn't come in. Ur and Onan never made it. They got slaughtered in, in the land of Canaan. Joseph was already there. Asenath, his wife, was already there. Ephraim and Manasseh were already there. So what's he mean that these are all the people that came into to the promised land? What he's saying is this is another covenant fulfillment. This is, once again, God fulfilling exactly what he's going to do. So first of all, it's really important that Moses tabulate how many people went in. Seventy people went into Egypt. And what the covenant promised to, to um, Abraham was, was when he was 99 years old, God appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So Moses is, is stopping, he's pausing at this point, and he's pointing at this covenant. He's saying, how many people came into Egypt? 77. Or 70, rather, I'm sorry. What he's going to say later in Exodus 12, after the, the Passover, the horrible nature of the Passover, he says, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. They came in as 70, and, and he's writing to these 600,000 men, right? They are the ones who are now traveling with him as they're wandering in the wilderness. He says, you went in as 70. You came out as 600,000 men. And by men, that doesn't include young boys or elderly. These are men who are ready for war. So there's the men, there's their wives, there's their children, there's the young and the old. Some theories put the number closer to a million. So did God fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham even in the harsh, terrible situation of Egypt? He just made Abraham a multitude. He was able to take him from 70 to probably over a million. In four generations, he did that. And if we go into Exodus, what you'll see is that's what scared the Pharaoh. As he said, these people are multiplying like rats. They're going to take over. we got to do something. So tell the midwives to kill the boys. Well, that didn't work. All right, well, we'll figure something else out. But he was afraid of them because God was with them. God was multiplying them. And that was God's covenant promise. It's important for Israel to hear that. It's important for us to hear that. When God tells us to go into all the nations and make disciples, what do we expect to happen on the other side of that? To come home alone? He tells us to go make disciples, and he says, I've, I'm going with you. And he says, all authority has been given to me. What do you expect when you go out and make disciples? You should be expecting disciples. The crowd around the throne will be uncountable. From every tribe, tongue, and nation will be uncountable. 
Do you trust that covenant promise? Will you trust that covenant promise? What will you do with that covenant promise? Look what he did with Israel. Seventy turns into over a million. So now the last part um, really kind of belongs with chapter 47. Because chapter 47 is the family moving into Goshen and settling. What happens in this portion of chapter 46 is really Jacob or um, uh, Joseph kind of preparing the way to make sure that they wind up in Goshen. Um, where Goshen is, is the, the Nile runs north to the Mediterranean, and when it gets to the Mediterranean, it branches out into a big delta. And what happens when there's a big delta like that is there's a lot of silt that comes down the river, makes it very fertile in that area, very green. That's the greener part of, um, of Egypt. And so that's where Joseph intends for his family to settle because there'll be plenty of water and there'll be plenty of food for the flocks. So that's what he's angling for. Um, now, last week we heard Pharaoh say, okay, well, settle them in, in um, wherever you want in the land, and, and Joseph's already worked on this. This is court drama where you have to kind of convince the king that it was his idea and everything's good. Uh, one of the oops factors in here is it says at the very end, um, you shall say, your servants are keepers of livestock from our youth until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, you remember what last week who I said was in charge? The Hyksos. They were called the shepherd kings. So it sounds like maybe they weren't in charge because they go to Pharaoh and say, hey, we're shepherds. And he goes, okay, yeah, go over there. This still holds. My theory holds together. <laughs> because where the Hyksos settled was in Goshen. So when, he's, when Moses points out every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians, He's, what he's basically saying is that's why Goshen was the place to go because if you'd have settled any further south, you'd have been mixed in with the Egyptians and they'd hate you. They'd think you were an abomination. But if you're up in the north, then it's okay because that's where the kings, the shepherd kings, who don't mind shepherds are. And so it, it forms this, this barrier, this separation. That little phrase also sets up what's about to come, which is after the Hyksos are kicked out in the, in the uh, 1500 B.C., 1582 or something like that B.C., the Egyptians take over, and guess who hates shepherds? The new rulers. Guess when they wind up probably going into slavery with the new rulers who can't stand them. So it still works. My, my theory holds together. I've defended myself. Yay. Um, but here's what's happening is Joseph is preparing them. He, he's prepping them to say exactly these right words so that all the work he's done on Pharaoh, when they hear this, Pharaoh will just follow right along with what Joseph's been planning. It's Joseph's goal. It's his desire to plant them in Goshen, in that rich, fertile place, because he wants to bless his family. He doesn't want them to remain dependent on him. He wants them to flourish and to grow and to be independent, because Joseph knows he's not going to be around forever. So this, again, is part of God's covenant family trusting God's covenant promise. And so even as they go into Egypt, even as they travel in there, Joseph is trying to set them up because he knows they're going to be here for a while. So we want to make sure they're in a good place. They're not here until the famine's over and then they're out. They're coming and they're settling, so let's settle them in a good place, put them in this optimum place. And that's kind of Joseph's story, isn't it? God continued to move, maneuver Joseph into the right position to do the right thing at the right time. And I think he's doing that even now as he is blessing his brothers. He's leading them in and taking them into this promised, beautiful place for them, just the right spot for them. And now if my other theory about this is correct, that Joseph is a type, a picture of Jesus Christ, isn't that what Jesus is going to do for us? Didn't he say, 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to my Father, and where I go, you'll come with me. It's the same thing that he's doing here. Jesus is promising, I've prepared the right place, the perfect place for you to remain, to stay, so that you'll be with me and with my Father. And so that, that's once more time, Joseph fulfilling this beautiful type of Christ for us. And again, can we trust that? Can we face death and say, you know what, Lord, I trust you. I believe that you have prepared a place for me. I believe that when I go, you will be there with me, that it is the land of Goshen. I think we should bring that phrase back. Didn't that the Beverly Hillbillies say that, I think? Land of Goshen. I think it's a beautiful phrase. We should remember that because that's kind of where we're heading is to this, this eternal land of Goshen, this place that's flowing with rich water and beautiful green and plenty of food and everything that we'll need. So that's the picture that's that painted here in this section. It's important for Israel. It's important for us because God's the same in both. So folks, when his covenant seems to be taking time, when things don't seem to be happening according to what we think they should be happening, don't forget God's covenant is across time. It spans over many generations, and he doesn't forget the people in between. Just because we don't see revival in America like they did hundreds of years ago doesn't mean God's forgotten us. He's doing something. He's working in us. And so what he's calling us to do now is trust his covenant promise. Will you be with me? I am with you. And that's our call. So as our great brother Joseph has prepared a place for us, and now we're waiting to settle, Let's, let's count on, remind him of, and call for his covenant promises because they're secure in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our faith is weak. Increase our faith. Lord, help us to trust you more. And you exist beyond time. Um, the, the, the time between Abraham and us is, is nothing to you. It's but a flash. But Lord, you understand for us, it's a long time. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. And we're looking and waiting and anticipating. But Lord, the delay can only mean one thing, that you're still working through and in your church until you accomplish your covenant purposes in the world. So Lord, I want to pray for Trinity Community Church. Lord, would we be part of your covenant promises? Would we be part of your covenant purposes? Lord, would we be at work in the world the way that you've called us to, even while you're silent, even while we haven't got um, fiery prophets uh, among us? Lord, we pray that we would remain faithful, walking with you, trusting in you. And Lord, we ask and we plead and we beg for revival in America. You can send that. You can do that. Lord, you have done it many times in the past. Would you do it again? And Lord, would you show us what our role in that might be? Lord Jesus, you said that all authority was given to you and that you're with us until the end of the age. And Lord, we're counting on that power to do what you've commanded us as we go and make disciples. Give us success, we pray, for your covenant's sake. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.